one of the bigger downsides of reaching financial independence is I definitely, I've always been a highly motivated person and I always kind of assumed like, well, I'm not motivated by money, but I'll still be motivated. But I would say that, no, I wish I had more impact. But again, I think I'm trying to keep perspective of where I'm at in life. Again, my daughter is 11. I have my health right now. Like I mentioned, I started doing some financial planning. And when I talked to this firm, like they had me meet the team. And one of the questions that's like, you know, where do you see yourself in like five or 10 years? And my honest answer was, I don't know. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hey, welcome back on this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast. I'm chatting with Chris Mamula. He just taught me how to say his last name, which I appreciate. I would have done it wrong. Chris documented, and where I first ran across Chris, he was documenting his uh, personal path to financial independence at Eat the Financial Elephant shortly before leaving a career as a physical therapist in 2017 at the age of 41. From there, he joined Darrow Kirkpatrick at Can I Retire Yet? And he's the co-author with Brad Barrett and Jonathan Mendonca of the book Choose FI, another great financial personal finance book, Your Blueprint to Financial Independence. His mission, like our mission, is to spread the life-changing message of financial independence to a broader audience. So most of you know that that sounds familiar, and that might be the reason I wanted to have him on the podcast. Chris, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Right when you took a drink. Perfect time. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. First, I'm super excited for the conversation. I read your stuff 10 years ago and I've run across your stuff through over the years. I'm just happy to have the conversation. Where do you call home, man? I'm originally from the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, but I now live in Ogden, Utah, and I've been here for about five years since I left my career as a physical therapist. Okay. And are you, so you're connecting from Ogden right now? I am. Yep. Okay. Okay. And you grew up in Pennsylvania. What... Did you learn specific money lessons, you know, as a kid about money, about entrepreneurship when you were growing up? Like I know as a kid, like I had an allowance and things like that. I really believe that the whole adage that like more is caught than is taught. And so like, I know in my family, like we were very anti-debt and I do remember my parents talking to me about like how they always like bought used cars and paid cash for them. And I remember it was like a big celebration. They paid off their mortgage. Like when I was probably like in high school-ish age, and they paid off their mortgage early, and that was a really big deal. So I think those lessons kind of stuck more than anything they tried to overtly teach me. I don't really remember anything they specifically tried to impress on me, but just that kind of frugality, I, a lot of it out of a sense of necessity, and then that anti-debt and just kind of making your money work for you were always things. And I guess maybe the other thing, my dad, he was a newspaper photographer, and I think he kind of sensed like he was probably a decade ahead of his time sensing like how the industry was changing, but he went out and became a freelance photographer and started his own small business. So the little bit of entrepreneurial bent I had, I think comes from him. And even like when I mentioned my original career was as a physical therapist, but I think I always thought as a small business owner, just cause I, I had that again, kind of drilled into me from watching my dad and my mom helped him run their business. So I kind of growing up in that environment. Yeah. So have you ever borrowed to buy a car? I have not. Nope. Never. No, I mean, my first car I inherited from my one of my grandparents when they passed away. 
And then from that point forward, I always bought, always tended to be used cheaper cars. And then our most recent car we bought new, but we've now had that for, it's now 11 years old. So we hung on to it for a while, but yeah, always with cash. So my dad, I don't know if this was a lesson in this, but my dad taught me a little different lesson because my first car, I mean, I got, you know, I inherited the family car, you know, 1976 Buick Electric, basically a tank, just didn't have tracks, right? It had tires. But then my first car I purchased, you know, I paid half of it, they paid half of it. But then when I went to college, I got a new car and I, not a new car, but I bought a car and I got a co-signer for a loan from my local credit union. And my dad was like, all right, you're going to college. You're going to have this car. It was a car I was going to deliver pizza in. So it was like, you got to learn how to manage your debt. And I don't know which is better to like be anti-debt or to learn how to manage debt. I think we need both lessons. Yeah. I mean, I think debt is a part of life for most people at the very least, like a mortgage. I mean, virtually no one can buy at least their first house with cash unless they're getting a lot of parental support or whatever. So yeah, I mean, that's unfortunately a part of life for most people, but yeah, we've really been able, and I kind of just internalized, I think a lot of that from my parents and otherwise I've been very much debt-free. Even college, I managed to get through. My wife and I have six degrees between us and she did the first one strictly on loans (laughs) because her parents weren't able to help her at all. But even at that, she was working full-time and going to school full-time. So we were paying that off before she was even done. And then, yeah, she has a match, a mas- two, actually two master's degrees. And both of those were able to be paid off as we went through employer stuff and paying as we went. And I got a bachelor's, master's, and a doctorate in physical therapy and all that with no debt. So very rare. Wow. Well done. Yeah. Kudos, man. So, yeah. so the lessons that you learned about being frugal, about anti-debt, are these things that you said you caught them rather than they were taught? Are these things that translated into beliefs early or did you have to go through some kind of experience to learn from them or is it just you absorbed it and it became something you believed? You know, I think I never really thought too much about this. That's actually a really good question. But like, I think watching my dad, like he was very successful in his career as a newspaper photographer, won a lot of awards and everything, but he was just miserable with it. Like he didn't want to do it. And so like, it was different than what I did, like with the whole fire, financial independence, retire early. And I left my career completely, but I mean, he kind of did that and went out and started his own business and just had a belief in himself and wanted to do something different. So I think the idea of like, your work shouldn't be miserable kind of, I think was ingrained in me and like getting into the healthcare system, like as a physical therapist, I just thought like, you're going to help people. And that's what I wanted to do. And then within a year or two, I think I realized like, I cannot imagine doing this for 30 or 40 years. And so I was looking for my own escape route and it ended up being a very different path than what my dad took, but I probably did internalize some of that from, you know, witnessing that growing up. Yeah. And you discovered as a physical therapist, it was more about paperwork and insurance than it was about helping people that the discovery. Sadly. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think that's, I just went through this medical thing where I, the reason I was in bed for two months in March and April, cause I, I herniated two discs in my back and I couldn't get in to see doctors. Like I, I could not see them. They, Oh, at three weeks, we'll see you. And then you got to see this one. Then you got to wait three weeks for an MRI. Then you got to wait three weeks. And I was like, and my doctor ultimately said, probably the two months in bed was worse for you than the, you know, the actual herniated discs. I'm like, yeah, that's that your- was a thought going through my head as you were saying it. Yeah, exactly. Of course. So bad. Anyway, I'm on the mend, so it's all good. So you went to physical therapy school all the way through doctoral program. When did you discover fire? And then when did you decide to fire for yourself? So a couple different, I guess there was kind of layers to that question. We were on the path to fire very early. I mentioned that my wife was paying for herself to go to school. And so before we got married, like I mentioned, like my family, like debt was a four letter word. My wife's family, 
kind of different experience. They struggled with money. Um, she had to put herself through school with like literally not $1 of parental assistance. And so like getting married, I realized like she wasn't irresponsible. She wasn't like running up debt out partying or out, you know, doing extravagant or frivolous things, but I still, it freaked me out, like going into marriage, having debt. So I kind of came up with the plan that we would uh, live off of her salary. So she covered all of our expenses. And then she was like built into that. She was paying like her minimum debt payment. And then everything I was earning was getting her out of debt because I really wanted to be debt free before we were married. And we managed to accomplish that. And we kind of realized like, you know, we were still in that broke, poor college kid lifestyle. And now we had like actual salary. So even living off her salary was way better than we were used to. And we didn't grow up with a ton of money. So better than what we were accustomed to growing up. So we just kind of figured, let's start, keep saving mine for a down payment on a house. And then we did that and just kind of kept that snowball rolling. So then throughout my career, I've never really spent a paycheck. I always, one of my first paycheck every month went to an extra house payment. And the second one went to our investments. And then once we paid our house off in like seven and a half years doing that. And so I mentioned like being very anti-debt. And so from that point forward, I just invested my whole paycheck. And that's how we were able to reach the point where I was able to leave my career at 41 years of age after like 15, 16 years of practice. So you were practicing fire. Had you read the fire blogs, listened to fire podcasts, or were you just, this was in your nature? It was in my nature. Yeah. I would say we were a good 10 years into it. Kind of didn't really think, like, I didn't think fire, like if I would have, I, I can certainly see why people see these mainstream things and how fire is presented. If I would have seen one of those at the time, I would have thought this is absurd. Like, I didn't think you could do that. And so kind of our plan was like, my wife and I kind of got into rock climbing and skiing. And so there's this like ethos of being like a dirt bag or a ski bum. And so that's what we were going to do. We were going, we didn't think we could have kids. And so we were going to move West. Uh, my wife had this dream job with a company called Black Diamond that manufactures like climbing gear and backcountry ski gear. And Dude, it was I know like kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. And so I was going to leave being a full-time therapist and I figured I'd kind of figure it out, maybe do some part-time work. And we were going to move West after like 10 years of saving. And then just as we were like ready to put our house on the market and all this stuff happened, we found out she was pregnant and we could have kids. So that was kind of like a life shifter and it made me get really serious. And that's when I stumbled upon fire blogs. But yeah, we were a good 11 years into the journey, um, paid off house, completely debt free, um, definitely not financially independent, but um, well on our way. Wow. So uh, first of all, my wife and I fell in love skiing and rock climbing as well. Like, I don't know if that's how you fell in love, but that, you know, we said we ended up doing a lot of that kind of stuff. I've spent an enormous amount of money on black diamond gear. I love this stuff. I have a totally a side question for you. Maybe you can answer this. It's sure. been about 10 years since I've used my soft stuff, the, the quick draws and the ropes. Do I have to replace that all now? I would definitely not climb on a 10 year old quick draw, okay, ropes, okay, but okay. I think the hardware, like the carabiners and stuff, I would think would be fine. My daughter and my nephew are both getting into climbing. And I'm like, we should go outside, but I got to buy all new gear. It's like not, not exciting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the answer to that question, but um, I would be nervous about it. And like, especially like harnesses are like 30 or 40 bucks, I think. And uh, a rope's yeah. 200. So it's not cheap, but it's not like, it's not, not worth terrible. dying over. Not, not <laughs> terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I, I just needed to ask that question of somebody and, and you just volunteered. I appreciate it. That would be my two cents. <laughs> <laughs> so when you discovered fire, and you started reading in it. I mean, you're already, it's in your nature. Did you find any good resources, like resources you were like, this is incredible. I want to share this with my friends. Yeah. I mean, the one that I've probably shared the most, and, and it really depends, I think, where you're coming to it from. So, I mean, a lot of the fire blogs that I think a lot of people get them turned on to the subject are like kind of make them wake up to the importance of saving a lot. We already had that kind of dialed in. So we knew that. But for us, like we had no idea on the technical side. So I thought investing was 
just over my head. And I thought tax planning, like I, I didn't, I had zero idea. Like, I mean, we filed our taxes every year, but just followed the software. We did no planning or thinking about it. So there was a resource, there's a blogger, JL Collins, and yep. his blog was just JL Collins, I think nh.com. I think he's from New Hampshire. And he had what was called the stock series, which really kind of just, it was basically John Bogle's ideas mixed with a high savings rate for fire. So that was really influential on me. And then there was a writer called the Mad Scientist who talked about some tax optimization strategies. And I saw your smile when I said that name. And like, I know like when we first discovered this stuff, it almost seemed too good to be true. And so we have an accountant friend and we sat down with her and like, she was just looking at me like with this puzzled look. And I was like, are we crazy? Like we can like go to jail for like something. And she's like, no, like what you're talking about is really brilliant. But just like, even as an accountant, all she did was just filed returns and she didn't really put much thought into it. And so the things that they were talking about, like just people don't do this. You live way less, way below your means defer a lot of it in your high tax years. You could spread it over many years, pay virtually no taxes, all legally. And yeah, just very simple strategies. Yeah. I mean, it helps if you are a business owner, it gives you a little bit, you know, a little bit more you can put aside, but if you're as an employee, you can do the same thing, right? Max out your 401ks, get the match, you know, live on less, invest the rest. I mean, these are all very simple things that you're right. People have a hard time, very hard time implementing. What are, what do you think some of the like misconceptions about fire out there? I mean, I really think the idea that it's like this extreme lifestyle, particularly like it's extreme frugality or, you know, you have to, you know, be a part of a startup and cash out on, you know, a $5 million sale or something. Like my wife and I did it on very normal salaries. I mentioned like the background we came from, particularly hers where like she had no parental help at all. Like I had good guidance, but not a whole lot of like financial help because just kind of the background we grew up in. So I think like really what it's about is just kind of being willing to be different than the crowd. Like I know I worked, again, I was in a healthcare field. I always use this example, but I was, we worked downstairs from an orthopedic surgeon's office. So there, there was five surgeons and you could just look at their cars and you knew who they were. And then there was three therapists and you could look at our cars and other than mine, like you kind of knew who like goes going down the hierarchy of like how much money people made. That's what they spent on their house, on their cars, on, you know, all the doctors were members of the local country club. Like one of them was an avid golfer. It makes sense for him too. The other four, I have no idea why they would spend tens of thousands of years on a country club membership, but it's just, I think everybody just kind of like you slot into like, this is what you make. This is like where you're at in this social structure. And then they spend up to that as opposed to just being very intentional. Like for me, we lived in a decent house, but it was way below what we could quote unquote afford, like from a mortgage standpoint, never cared about cars. So we always, uh, I drove that car I inherited from my grandfather for like 10 years while we were working to get ourselves established, just really aligning your spending with your values, I think is what it's all about, but you don't have to be frugal. We traveled the world while we were, while we were saving 50%, like we've been to Africa, South America, doing high altitude mountaineering, Dove the Great Barrier Reef. I mentioned we're from Pittsburgh. Like the religion there is Steeler football. We've been to two Super Bowls. So we spend on the things we value, just not on the things that everybody else does. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the core things to think about. And this is one of the, the first thing you can be mindful about in your finances, is mindful about what's important to you. Like if you, if you know what's important to you, then you spend on that and you just don't do the other things and that's okay. And you get more happiness, you get more well-being, you get more meaning out of that. It's just a better way to go. So yeah, you go ahead. I was just going to add one quick note. You mentioned in the intro, like the Choose FI book that I wrote, what that was, it was crowdsourced from, so Choose FI is just a really popular podcast amongst the yep. Spire community. And so one of the people called into the show, we, so we use their podcast as the basis of the book. And one of the people called in and they use this term being a valuist. 
and just basically like you don't have to be frugal or a minimalist like it's like i have way too many possessions and i'm not particularly frugal i don't think but a value is just meaning you really line your your spending up with your personal values and uh, to me that kind of just summed up exactly what we were doing that you know that 10 years before we had any idea what we were doing but we were saving so much just because we kind of nailed that i think if you're suffering and sacrificing it just doesn't work but if you spend in alignment with your values it's really not that hard what do, you, what do you think about the idea that, you know, your values change over life? You know, you, the things that you think are important when you're 20 and you're going to college are going to be different than the things that when you have two kids or when you're 50 and you're, you know, maybe you want to travel more and things are just more expensive. So you, do you advocate like preparing for, I don't want to say leakage or just sort of the increase in the desire to spend as we age, or do you more advocate, Hey, let's just manage that and make sure we just focus on what's important to us. That's a good question. I mean, I definitely agree things change over time. I know for us, we've kind of grown our lifestyle as our income and as our investments have grown and everything. But I mean, I still think we're very intentional. Like I know I mentioned like we went to two Super Bowls. I don't know, like growing up in Pittsburgh, like that was something that I just always said, like if the Steelers made the Super Bowl, I was going to go. So the first time they were in Detroit, it was a drive. I had family there. We went and just dropped, I don't know, I think five grand on a pair of tickets, like (laughs) scalped. And like to me, like that was really valuable at that time since I've had my daughter, I've not been to any sporting event. I used to go to like concerts. I just like your values change. So like in some ways, like I spend now on my daughter and it's more expensive to travel with three people than it was with two and things like that. But by the same tokens, things that I used to care about, I don't so much anymore. So I think like the key thing is the structural expenses. Like if you look at like where most people spend their money, it's housing, cars, and food as makes up about 50% of most household spending. So that tends not to change very much. And And even like with that, like as we got more intentional, like we knew we wanted to live in a different location. So we moved to Ogden, Utah, which as far as ski towns go, like we chose it because it was affordable. Like it's on the lower end of ski towns, but ski towns are notoriously expensive. So it was way more expensive than where we came from. So even though we were growing our family, we now had a third person, we actually downsized our house and Mm -hmm. to be able to afford that. And so again, just kind of lining up like what is important to us at that stage of life. And then making the finances work around it versus, you know, locking yourself into a set of finances and then kind of having to structure your life around that. I think that's kind of looking at it backwards. Yeah. Do, do you think FI is recognized fairly unfairly as like the new retirement? I like the idea of financial independence instead of retirement. I think like a lot of people, like everything is about getting to retirement and this idea that like, you know, you'll get to this point eventually where you don't have to work and then you travel and then you do things. And like, again, kind of a personal example, but in my own family, like my parents, they I kind of like, quote unquote, like they did everything right and got to the point they actually, I guess, kind of early retired. They were in their late fifties, early sixties, but my mom had a type of, and so they were very limited by the time they got to that point. And like, they were still able to travel and do some things, but she was just fatigued very quickly. And then during COVID, her health really declined and she passed away this April. And so at 66 years old, and so like just when most people are getting to that age where like you're supposed to retire. So I think the idea of establishing financial independence, and even if it's not like where you could go without working forever, but having degrees of financial independence where you can start cutting back and living a different lifestyle to me is much preferable to like deferring gratification for this idea for this time that may never come, frankly. And even if it does, you know, you're 20 years down the road, my daughter will be out of the house. Like right now I could spend time with her 20 years down the road. Like I love to ski and hike and mountain bike and climb who knows what my health will be. So I'd rather cash in on that now, I guess, and and do those things while I can. And then, you know, while keeping an eye towards the future, not being financially irresponsible. So uh, I, I just literally dropped 
and there's a huge shift going on in my own head. And when I think about my finance, I dropped my son off at college uh, this last weekend and it's, you know, emotional. And it's also, it's a financial difference. Like when you set up your grocery order, it's, you know, one quarter of the household is gone. So groceries going to be less groceries, less milk, less eggs, less everything. It's going to be, it's a shift. Obviously there's a college education that adds a price, but so life goes on, life changes, you change with it. You like the idea of financial independence instead of retirement, but is there still a point where you retire or are you sort of saying, Hey, we're going to work forever and have some kind of income, even if it's not the 40 hour, you know, slog every week, go to the office, that kind of a thing. Yeah. So I think that acronym FIRE, financial independence. So I think a lot of people think you get to this point where you don't have to work and then retirement is the logical next step. I kind of like, there's different people try to play with the acronym. I heard like financial independence, like recreational employment or whatever, but I like the idea of like, I think most people who can retire at 40, they're resourceful, they're intelligent, they're thinking outside the box. They're probably not going to be able to just sit around and watch Netflix for like 16 hours and then sleep for the other eight. Like they're going to want to do something productive, but like just the difference for me, like now I write my blog, I publish once a week. So that's maybe 15 hours a week, let's say. And I do some financial planning. I actually just started doing that this year, 10 hours a week through a firm. And it kind of like, I help them publicize things. And I actually do work with clients. It gives me things to write about, gives me social interaction, makes me feel like I'm helping people. But I mean, I basically have total control of my schedule other than those 10 hours a week. So like I can write when I want and do the other work whenever I want. And so, yeah, it's just a nice mix as opposed to, you know, work, get to the point where there's, you're really comfortable retiring. And then Again, that could cost you five or 10 years of your life extra where, you know, to get to that position where if you just make a little bit of income, it takes a lot of stress off of a portfolio, eliminates a lot of the risk, and also at the same time gives you a lot of secondary benefits, just psychologically and purpose-wise. So do you, in writing and preparing for the writing and everything, do you actually look at things like the statistics around, and I'm going to use the word because I don't really have another word, right? Retirement readiness, like amounts saved savings rates, these kinds of things. And can you just paint the picture of those statistics? Yeah. I mean, the audience I write to is definitely not the norm. I mean, if you look at average retirement balances, the one study I tend to look at annually just for consistency that Vanguard puts out, it's called like their retirement readiness. And it basically is looking at the money in their retirement accounts, but that's where most people other than in their house if they have any money outside of their house, it's in the retirement accounts. And like the average person between like age 55 to 65, it's generally, it goes up and down depending on what the market's doing, but it's generally between 90 and a hundred thousand dollars. So if you look at like, it's, this isn't, I wouldn't call this a rule, but like a guideline that is like the 4% rule that you could take 4% of your portfolio every year. If you have a hundred thousand dollars, you could take $4,000 to supplement social security. So basically you have nothing is where most people are. So yeah, the audience I'm writing to is very different. And abnormal in a good way. They're on the uh, higher side of that. Yeah. So tell me about that audience. Tell me about can I retire yet? I, you know, I love the no nonsense. You know, keep it simple message. So what is the mission and vision of can I retire yet? I think the vision is. I think a lot of people, and th- this kind of is always evolving. Again, a lot of this is my own personal story and my own personal evolution. But I think where I'm at now, and where I find a lot of readers are now that I've reached this point, we're drawing people that are kind of at that point where they're making a, tr- a transition, is. People are good savers for a reason. Again, it's not the normal in society. So people, the average person is saving $100,000 over 40 years. We're talking about people that tend to have a million to $3 million by the time they're 40, 50 years old. So 
what's driving them. Again, you, most people, there are maybe people that just suffer and sacrifice and they can grit their teeth and you know have white knuckles, but most people, they do it for a different reason and it feels good for whatever reason that saving comes naturally. And so when you get to that point, it's actually hard to spend down. So one of the big topics that I write about now and I focus a lot on is just getting people comfortable spending from their portfolio or like doing things like semi-retirement or encore careers or something that they're doing things that they enjoy more and life doesn't revolve around work, but it gives them that comfort to actually get out and live the life that they want to live versus feeling trapped and you know, constantly one more year, a little bit more money, and then I'll be there. Because I think a lot of people get trapped in that. And the, again, the audience that I'm talking to and reading to and writing for. Yeah. I'm just really curious about this because the people that I know that have really high savings rates are almost always coming from a family situation or a lifestyle where they just didn't have anything. Like mm-hmm. they were, they didn't have money. They felt poor and they were, and this is my story. It sounds like it's kind of your story. It sounds like it might be your wife's story. It, you know, people that grow up with very little, they're like, I'm, this is not going to happen to me. I'm going to do something different. D- does that like square with your demographic with the folks you're writing to? hundred percent. Yeah. Like I've just t- interacting with readers and going to like meetup events. I mean, I think again, like I think even my story is maybe a bit rare. Like my wife's story, like coming from that scarcity, I think is more common. A lot of people like immigrants, people coming from uh, like countries where, you know, like they were coming to the country with their parents without having a whole lot. And then first generation people, uh, I think it's much more natural in that than like, I think there's actually, it can be a disadvantage to come from wealth. Like I think that people think that that's how you do this. Like you have to have it handed to you. But if you're used to like, you know, driving a new car every two years and you're used to going on these fancy vacations and staying in first class hotels and, you know, and then you, unless you make a really high salary, it's hard to keep that up uh, and to maintain that and to match the lifestyle. And that's the tendency. So yeah, I, I think definitely that's normal to come from. Sometimes, honestly, a position of scarcity, which is again, kind of what I'm writing to and trying to help people get over that um, hump and to break out of that mindset. So there's two things that are just that are tracking on this, and that one one is so are you doing something different to raise your kids, your kid, so that they have even though you she's not going to be you know suffering from scarcity, but are you making it sort of as if she's got some scarcity so that she doesn't end up being an overspender or or, or you know how are you translating that because she's in a different scenario? Uh, I have the same issue with my kids, and there's this trend of and I see this, my, my couple, my families that I work with who have a lot of money, their kids are oftentimes not able to manage their financial lives. You know, they, they, it's just too easy. You know, money just flows. They spend too quickly and mom and dad have to step in and keep supporting. Right. And those people who grow up with very little, they're able to just manage it and do it and deal with whatever comes their way. And they're able that, that, that it's not just scarcity. It's also resilience in the face of adversity, right? They're able to deal with whatever comes their way. So the first question is, are you raising your kid? Will you raise your kids to experience scarcity or how are you building resilience in them so they can deal with adversity when it comes their way? Yeah. I mean, I think what we're trying to do, and again, like this is an N of one. So even if it's a smashing success, I don't know how repeatable that it is, but what we're trying to do is, I mean, we certainly want to enjoy her and have her enjoy life and give her experiences. Like she's traveled. We have a goofy family adventure that we're working. We're trying to get to the highest point in all 50 States, which some of them, uh, but that involves work. Like some of those are real mountains that like that she's been to. So we're actually up to 31. So she's been all over doing that. But like we do like amusement parks, like she's been skiing since she was two years old. So yeah, I think she has a interesting lifestyle and adventuresome, 
but doesn't have a lot of material things. Like we, we still kind of keep the values. Like it kills me. Like for myself, I don't really care what I spend on clothing because I'll wear it for ten years. But like it kills me to spend money on a kid that grows out of it. Like last year, her ski boots. She grew. We got her rented for the season in October, and the first time we went in December, she grew out of them. So it kills me to spend money on like actually buying high quality stuff. So yeah, I mean, we shop in secondhand stores a lot of times for like stuff like that. Rent her gear for outdoor stuff. Just toys. Like she doesn't get it. Like one of the things we kind of impress on her, like we take her shopping, like we do through our church, like giving at Christmas time. And I think she sees like we buy more for other kids who don't have than she actually gets. And I, I think she appreciates and understands that. So yeah, we're trying to impress on her. Again, I think that whole idea, like more is caught than taught, like especially she's only 10, she'll be 11 shortly. So how much if we tried to pound this into her, I don't think she's going to really care anyway. But I do think she's picking up and she understands like just the idea that, you know, we're around a lot. We go skiing. Like she has a half day Friday. We're always not working. So we go skiing like on weekdays, not when it's crowded and we're available to go on field trips and coach her soccer team and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I think she's picking up on it. I hope so. I worry about that, you know, that cycle of family has money, teaches kids poor lessons and the next family doesn't have money, teaches kids good lessons and then money. And right, there's this up down cycle that occurs. So yeah, and there, there's like that Warren Buffett idea of like, giving your kids enough that they can do anything, right. but not enough that they can't do, that they, they can do nothing. And I think right. like, obviously we're not more, more in Buffett's territory, but uh, I think that's kind of our approach. Like we've, like, I know when we were saving for college, we saved like the first five years of her life, kind of like we did with our own retirement, just front loaded things. And then we were like, you know, we want to have enough that, you know, she could probably, we could probably get her through a state school and, you know, get her through most of the way, if not all of the way. But I don't want her to just have like, I think she has a blank check. So we stop there. And yeah, just stuff like that. Like we definitely want to help her and like not make it as hard as particularly like with my wife again, like working full time and going to school full time. I still think she's like dealing with some health uh, things from like living that level of stress at that age. And I don't yeah. think that's good to be that um, scarce, but by the same token, yeah, we're definitely not writing her a blank check and, and uh, she'll be well aware of that. Yeah. I mean, it goes so far just to communicate with them, just to have conversations. And, and you won't have had these conversations, but as she's preparing for high school and college, have the you know, you have the conversations. I did this when my son was a freshman in high school. He gathered a group of seniors from his high school and I did a like a more of a, wasn't education. It was just, I wanted to figure out what these seniors in high school were worried about money. And so I had this, we had eight or nine of them on a Zoom call and they were petrified of being able to afford college. And they were all at private schools. They were all families were well-to-do, but they were just terrified. They, their families don't talk to them and you got to talk to them, right? I'm, I'm sure you will. Say, so, do you think, are you having the impact you want? I mean, are you reaching the people you want to reach? I would say like the, maybe one of the bigger downsides of reaching financial independence is I definitely, I've always been a highly motivated person and I always kind of assumed like, well, I'm not motivated by money, but I'll still be motivated. But I would say that, no, I wish I had more impact. But again, I think I'm trying to keep perspective of where I'm at in life. Again, my daughter is 11. I have my health right now. Like I mentioned, I started doing some financial planning. And when I talked to this firm, like we, they had me meet the team. And one of the questions that's like, you know, where do you see yourself in like five or 10 years? And my honest answer was, I don't know. Like I, I could see myself eventually down the road working full time. Like if I can't get out and ski because my health goes or as my daughter gets older and she doesn't want me around anymore. But like right now, yeah, I don't really have any desire to work more. 
And I would like to make more impact, but I'm willing to leave that on the table because there's other stuff I want to do more right now. But at times it is a struggle and I wish I was um, reaching more people with my writing or able to serve more clients like doing the planning. But yeah, I, I think I've got a pretty good balance. Yeah. I, I talk to a lot of people and interview people and just friends in the fire community. And the thing that I've started to see come up more and more is, and I share this, they're doing the work, they're doing the writing, they're doing the podcasting, and none of them see the impact they're having. And so it's very difficult to feel like, yeah, I'm having an impact. I can write, I post a blog post, you know, you can see some statistics on who reads it. You don't know if you're changing people's lives. You know, you don't know if people actually embrace the behaviors or if they're just reading it and going, oh, that's interesting. And then, and then turn the page and go to the next thing. So I'm sensing a lot of frustration in the fire community. And I just would keep on saying, keep doing it. Cause I, there are people that you have an effect on and one or two of those goes a long way as to changing the narratives, right? So just, just keep doing it. I hope you keep doing it. One of the best pieces I've seen you uh, write was the psychology of saving money. It's about the importance of the savings rate. And I loved your setup on this because you contrasted not, you, you didn't say, oh, it's hard to save more. What you said was, it's hard to not save more, right? Yeah, it is harder to save more than less, but if you don't save more, the outcome is you don't get to financial independence. Like it's hard to not save more. I love that setup. So talk about the difference. And in, 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 I know you probably don't remember that specific article you wrote. Maybe you do. But if you do, talk about it. Tell us about that. Why is that so important? No, I, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. So I don't remember the specifics of what I wrote in that, but I definitely remember the context. And like, I think we, we, you just had me, you know, go over like, what is the picture for the average retiree, the average 55 to 60 year old who really doesn't have much saved. And so when you say like, it's hard to save 50% when you can't save 10%, that kind of makes the assumption that it's easy to save 10%. And clearly it's not. Cause even if you're saving 10, that's the kind of the standard advice, right? Is to save 10 to 15%. Uh, and if you do that, you should be on track to be, you know, financially dependent by the time you're at retirement age and people are not there. So I flip it around and say like, why is it so hard to follow the standard advice? Because it's clearly not working for most people. And I think the reason is it's just, it takes so long to have success. And so people just kind of, they just, they're not seeing any progress and they're not motivated. And so they actually save even less than what they should and just kind of kick the can down the road. And then, I mean, I just had a meeting yesterday with a woman who's in her fifties very good income, nothing saved at all. And that's just kind of very standard. And that's kind of where a lot of people are starting. And I think like the, the example I like to give is again, that standard advice of saving 10%. And then there's another piece of standard advice is you should have like six months of savings as an emergency fund. Right. And if you just put those two pieces of information together, so like if you're saving 10%, then by definition, you're spending 90%. So if you're making $10,000 a month, just to make the math super easy, that means you're spending 9,000 and so you're saving 1,000. So after a month, you have one ninth of one month. And so if you multiply that out, you have to do that nine months just to save one month and then another six times doing that. So it's 54 months. So what's that? Four and a half years just to save an emergency fund before you invest and actually start growing your money just to have money in the bank. Whereas if you're saving 50% in one month, you've saved one month because you've you're living off half and you're saving half. And I think the part that's not intuitive is of course, you're going to be spend, you're going to be saving more because you're saving five times as much, but it's just that progress towards a goal. You're also cutting down how much you're spending to save 50%. And so you're lowering the bar. So you're going to now have that emergency fund in six months if you can save 50%. And I know that's a big leap for a lot of people to make when they can't save anything. 
But, you know, if you really dive into, again, what are the big things that move the needle, housing, cars, food, change those big things, um, you know, get out of debt. So you're not, you don't have your money working against you and start saving where your money is working for you. It's surprising how fast things add up, but you really, you have to make the change and you have to do those big things. Yeah. So saving 50% is hard, but not reaching financial independence is even harder. I mean, that's the thing that's sort of stuck in the back of my mind. And I think it's important in this article, you actually have this caveat that there's like a, and you just mentioned it, right? There is a minimum spending floor. You know, you got to eat, you got to live somewhere, you got to get places, you need a car, some sort of mode of transportation, and you probably today you have to have a cell phone of some kind, right? So there, there is a minimum set of bills. And so there's some people that are just starting out and should focus on increasing their income right? Not cutting. And and we just have to admit that, I think, because there are people that are just starting out. Lots and lots of them. Yeah. And, and there's like this criticism, I think, of the fire movement that we're out of touch. And certainly, like, I don't say everybody can do this. I mean, that would be silly to say, like, you know, somebody that's working a fast food job for minimum wage can save 50%. But that person, like, I think that's where they are and not who they are. So they can certainly... I was that person working at a fast... I was worked at Domino's Pizza when I was going to school. So I was that person. And... But like, I was as a stepping stone to bigger things and then growing that. But there's also, again, I worked in the healthcare profession. I've worked with people that made four times what I was making. And I, we talked finances as they knew I was starting to write a blog and doing some stuff. And they were nowhere near having even the amount of assets I had and their lifestyle cost multiples of what mine did. So this message does scale and it does, it is applicable to a lot of people, yeah. but not everybody. Yeah, for sure. And and that's my experience as well. I, I have tons and tons of clients that have incredible incomes. I, m- I met a guy who was like, he had income from books he had written. He was a professor. He was a, he served on the board of multiple companies. I mean, he had an incredible income, but he spent 10% more than his income. Like, and that therein lies the problem. So getting close to the end here, the one common thread that I have in most of these uh, interviews is I ask you to simplify it for us. So I, just pretend you're on a plane probably in coach somewhere there's a cheaper ticket, right? And you, someone says, oh, you write at this blog. Hey, I got some questions for you. What is one thing that they can do that will help them be more personally and financially successful? And what is one thing that they should stop doing that will help them be more successful? I mean, I think the first thing, because again, talking to the average person that you're going to meet on an airplane, they're probably not on top of their finances and they're probably leaking a lot of money and they have no idea. So I think the first thing that if you want to change your financial picture, you have to know where your money is going. So I think just starting to, to develop, I mean, I'm not a budgeter. I've never really made a budget, but at least tracking your spending, sitting down every month. And you know, if you spend most of your money on a credit card, that's maybe the easiest way to figure out where it's going, just to look at your statements. If you're writing checks, if you're whatever, if you're paying with cash, it's harder, but however you need to do it, sit down and see where your money is going first off. And without judgment, just... You know, I think a lot of people are shocked. They have no idea how much they're spending. They think they know, but they, I think they'd be shocked if they saw it. And then without judgment, just, you know, say like, is this money adding value to my life? Is this moving me towards what I say is important? Because I think most people, if you ask them what's important, they would say their family, their friendships, other relationships, their health. But if you look at where people's money is going, it's, you know, big houses, it's car payments and then commuting costs because they're in their car all the time. It's, you know, food, not necessarily because they're eating great food, but because they're going out for convenience and picking up takeout or getting fast food and things like that. And I think if people really looked at where their money is actually going and they lined it up, I think that's the first thing to do. And what's one thing to stop doing? Maybe just the opposite of that, like the mindless spending. But I, I think maybe even more important is 
I think stop just reflexively spending based on what you see everybody else around you doing. Because again, I think that kind of, it's kind of the flip side of that same coin of like really lining up your spending with your values. But I think a lot of people, they just fall in the trap of, you know, I'm this profession. So this is what I do. And you don't have to, I mean, you can, if that's truly what you want to do, but you don't have to. I, I love the two things that the, the non-judgmental, you said, don't judge without judgment. Hey, that's what mindfulness is all about. It's the non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. I don't know if you're a meditator, but you sound like one, which is great. So ju- just before I wrap up, this is always a zinger. We've got to ask something that at the end that's tough. So what's the last thing you changed your mind about? I don't remember if we were talking before we started recording or on this, but we mentioned like my frustration with the medical system. And so I think working in the medical system and again, kind of being a caretaker for my mom, watching her go through a lot of things, I just have a really sour taste in my mouth. And my thought is like, you want to do everything you possibly can to avoid the medical system and, you know, take things into your own control, be preventative. And I still believe that. I think that's a a good starting point. But I read a book recently called Outlive by a doctor named Peter Atia, mm-hmm. and he kind of talks about the, the four horsemen of like the four things that really get people and eventually lead to your death. And that's metabolic syndrome, which is like diabetes and obesity and all that stuff and cancer and heart disease and like cognitive changes. And kind of like a lot of what he thinks is kind of lines up with what I think, but like he made up some points like with particularly with cancer that once you have cancer for all the research and all the money it's spent, we haven't really gotten any better at, you know, preventing death and, and improving quality of life beyond maybe 10 years. And so he really advocates for screening early. And he acknowledges that that comes with risks. It comes with costs. It comes with chance that you may get a false positive and go down roads of worry and maybe even treatment unnecessarily. But he makes a pretty compelling case and it, it impacted me. And then he also talks about like using statins if you have high cholesterol. And again, I'm very anti-medicine and traditionally. So after I read that, both of those things were relevant for because last year I turned 45 and that's when you should get a colonoscopy. And I scheduled it two times and I canceled it last year. And I also was told that my cholesterol was a little bit high and I was very reluctant. And so immediately after reading the book, I went back and because he made such compelling arguments of, you know, like use, don't, you know, don't rely on the medical system like most people do, but use it intelligently. So I actually am scheduled an appointment. I made both of those changes. So that may be the best answer I've gotten to that question. So I, that was just top of mind for you. That's pretty, that's impressive. I wrote a book review on it for the blog. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I wrote about it about a month or two ago. That's a good, it's also a book that's been recommended to me by a couple of people. So it's another, it's a good book. So I just want to say thanks for coming on. Thanks for a great conversation. I'm happy to put any links in there you want. So where do people connect with you? So my home on the internet is caniretireyet.com. And that's where you'll find my blog and you kind of link out to anything else that I do. And I mentioned I've now started doing some financial planning. I do that through a company called Abundo Wealth. It's abundowealth.com. And um, we're trying to do advice only, uh, relatively low cost advising, trying to bring quality advice to people who traditionally wouldn't have access to it. And it's a mission I really believe in. So I'd love if people would check that out also. Thanks, Chris. Much appreciate your coming on. Thank you. It was a great conversation. And this is kind of my favorite part of doing this. I meet a lot of interesting people just by doing these podcasts. So uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. You as well. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.